Today in the garage, we have Aman Patel. Aman is a sole practitioner experienced in representing individuals and corporations in a broad range of matters, such as cross-border complex fraud and commercial crime, as well as advocating for those who are affected by crime. Today, Aman discussed his practice when it comes to interviewing potential clients alongside the importance of organization and honesty between a solicitor and client. Whether you're driving a Jag convertible, shredding your Ovation guitar, or working on your retainer agreement, let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. You know, what's interesting is uh, mentorship is so important and the role you also play in criminal law is important. Um, you've, you're senior counsel, you've helped out a lot of lawyers, and uh, I want to ask some advice for lawyers on their first interview. How important is that first interview with a client? Oh, I, that interview is absolutely key. To me, it's the foundational building block that, that sets the tone of your relationship with your client and the expectations and how you manage those expectations when a prospective client or a client comes through your door. Um, uh, you know, it's not just about, okay, what happened? And, you know, where's my check? Uh, it goes well beyond that. And um, uh, there are some lawyers or those that will start, which who may be afraid to try and manage those expectations and may get... Um, may allow the, the, the client in a way to um, drive the bus. Now, um, as Justice Code once said, uh, if informally or possibly formally, and other senior lawyers like yourself, um, uh, you know, it's the lawyer that drives the bus. The client gets to make some very key decisions. Uh, that's their absolute and unfettered right. But beyond that, it is you that has carriage of the case. It is you as a lawyer that, that makes uh, uh, certain uh, important decisions um, which draw upon your knowledge, your expertise, and possibly even some guidance from mentors. Uh, but that's the way it happens. You're not there as a tool of the client. Yeah, you know, one of the things is it's really no different than any other part of your life. Um, you're giving good guidance to people. You have the background in law. You have the experience uh, in dealing with people on a one-to-one -one basis by bringing facts to the court. So, you know, the concept of law and then actually bringing it forward to the court. So that, that experience, as you talk about, uh, you're able to bring the client on the bus. And That's you, right. you allow them the decision, guilty or not guilty, testify or not testify. And mode of trial. That's it. Right. And, and, and But you're educating them along uh, the way completely mm -hmm. so that they're completely informed. And back in, I think it was 1994, I went to a, a conference in uh, South Carolina with uh, Posner and Dodd. Oh, yes. And, uh, and they said, that, you know, the greatest complaint about lawyers is the lack of communication. And we know that power is uh, really is derived from information and it's not about the check like you say they will sign the check it's about creating expectations and delivering on those expectations um in a manner that they understand so so that so that they understand what your role is do you explain to them uh what the process is do you do you know what how do you how does your run interview unfold and then i after that i want to talk to you about what a retainer is and, and what sure. does your retainer look like sure so um before 
the, a client comes through my door, we've typically spoken on the phone or uh, we've traded a couple of emails. If you speak to in any communication prior to a retainer agreement being signed, I always tell the client, uh, and it doesn't matter how sophisticated they are, I always tell them that I am not retained, I am not your lawyer until we have signed a, a retainer agreement and I have an initial retainer. On that basis, I communicate with them. I do not give them any legal advice because you may not be covered because you're not retained. And uh, what I do, however, uh, tell them is, look, you have to bring in some government-issued uh, photo identification. Um, if you uh, have any materials that have been provided to you by the police, let's say in a drinking and driving uh, scenario, uh, the uh, readout printouts uh, and so forth, bring all your paperwork that you, you've been provided by the authorities. If it's a consultation where it's a, still a criminal investigation, start bringing in materials. Depends. Sometimes it's just a, a few sheets of paper. Sometimes it's boxes and boxes. But I say, let's start getting information in from you. Uh, I explain to them that I need your photo identification. It's part of the requirements of the, of the law society. Um, here is what I'm expecting as an initial retainer. How will you be paying it? If it's credit card, fine. Uh, here's a link. Uh, or you can bring your credit card in. Uh, or if you want to pay by check, I prefer that you go to the bank and get a bank draft and you make it out to my name and trust. Uh, and, um, and when you come in, I will explain the entire process to you. So I try and keep the initial communications uh, fairly short. I like to make them feel a bit comfortable. Uh, depending on what they tell me that uh, uh, that they're looking at as by way of uh, what jeopardy they're in, I may tell them that this is a very serious matter and whether you want to retain me or somebody else for that matter, get on it very quickly because this is not to be trifled with at all. Um, so that's my, my initial information I give to them. Once they come into the office, then... Uh, there, there's a, a, a set procedure I have that I don't deviate from. Uh, and again, to me, it doesn't matter how sophisticated or unsophisticated the client is. It doesn't matter to me whether they are uh, funded by legal aid or not. It, you know, makes no difference to me. And the reason I do it this way is that then there's no deviations. You don't forget to do something or, you know, you figure, oh, it's a cash client. I, I don't need to do this. No. You go back to the foundations, managing expectations. So, uh, you know, here are my rules and here's what you have to abide by when you're dealing with me as your lawyer. Um, and I do, at part of the interview, I do tell them I, I can be quite tough on my clients uh, and you better expect that. And if I ask you to do certain things and get certain things completed uh, by a certain date, they have to be done. Otherwise, why am I helping you? What's the use? It sounds like you give them your A game each and every time. doesn't matter where they're from, whether they have the ability to pay or they don't have the ability to pay. That's right. Um, but it's important what I think you just uh, telegraphed, which is I'm not a babysitter. I'm here as your lawyer. Yeah. And uh, are you strict on that? Are you strict to say, you know, here's the value I bring. I know the law. I'm going to translate the facts and I'm going to provide, you know, a pathway for either... Uh, an acquittal or f during the trial, or if there's a resolution, you'll, you'll assist in that way. Are you very strong on that? Um, the first interview, uh, it really depends on the client. Uh, some, our clients are fairly versed with the criminal justice system. 
um, and have had experience either personally or through others. Others are quite afraid and so and, and extremely worried or their spouses or their parent is or whoever. And so you, you have to uh, tailor the um, uh, first or the intake, as I call it, uh, according to that. So part of the intake is an intake form. This is required by the Law Society. You get the client's ID. I tend to uh, work with a scanner. It goes straight into my scanner, straight into my electronic system, and a copy is printed out for the hard copy file. Um, there's a, the intake form has, you know, they have to put down all their bio data and uh, if they're employed, where they're employed. All the things that the Law Society requ requires is on that form. Um, I, and if you go onto the Law Society's website, they have a sample intake form. Uh, if, you, if you have a colleague that can give you one, use it as a precedent, cross-check it against the Law Society form, because for new lawyers out there, and even some lawyers that have been out a little while, you will be audited. And one of the things that the auditors ask for, first thing, where's the client's ID? Where's the intake form? Be before they even get to the trust stuff, you know. So uh, make sure you have that and you're, you keep your powder dry. So um, what I do is I fill that out with the client. It, it tends to soothe the client a little bit. Uh, as you ask some questions, uh, you know, uh, do you have any children, for example? Oh, really? And you, you start breaking the ice um, uh, with that form. Once that form is filled out, then we move on to the retainer agreement. My um, practice is to always have two copies. One I, I hand to the client, and the other I, I, uh, I, I, I have for myself, and we read it together paragraph by paragraph, page by page. Uh, some lawyers have very um, short retainers. They figure you don't want to spook the client. Um, I have long retainers, uh, minor, several pages. And it is, again, I want to manage their expectations. I can give you an example. Um, I, uh, there was a time uh, a lawyer had a client sign a retainer but did not address disbursements and photocopying. Well, the photocopy charges came out to $4,000. Guess who ate that? Not me. <laughs> but that um, the co-accused lawyer certainly had to because the, the client held the lawyer to the sword. And that's something that you must always remember is at the end of the day, the client can pick up that retainer agreement and hold you to its sword. And so vice versa. Put in as much information in there as possible, because as you've said, Paul, knowledge is power one on of, both sides. Yeah. One of the things that uh, it took me a long time to do was to be able to ask for a retainer. I, I, I would I would take some small deposit. Yeah. I would never have a realistic uh, view of what a retainer was. And then when I did take a retainer and I finally had it in trust, I, 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 I didn't learn that like what the civil lawyers do is... They send the bill, yes, and they expect it to be replenished, yes, all the time, yes. And so, uh, do you have any strategy or, or good advice for young lawyers on how to get a retainer, how to ask for it, yes, and then how do you bill it? And, and when work's done, uh, you know, sending out a request for further money so that uh, the retainer is robust till the end of the trial. Sure. So, uh, with within my retainer agreement are terms and conditions that deal specifically with that and directly with that. 
Um, as I mentioned uh, initially, I tell the client until I have a, an initial retainer in in the file or in trust, I'm not, you know, we're not, we don't have a relationship and I'm not doing any work and I'm not looking at anything. So um, how do you determine the initial retainer? Well, with experience, you start figuring out how much something is going to cost. For younger lawyers, don't shortchange yourself and figure, well, if I ask for $1,000, I'll get the client. Uh, you may get the client, but then you may spend a lot of time chasing that client down for more money. And, uh, and we all know that we can't get off the record for want of retainer. That's, uh, judges have no sympathy for us. And, and there's no uh, sort of empathy or sympathy when we're working below minimum wage. No, there isn't. So, uh, you know, uh, speak to your uh, mentors, speak to some of your more senior colleagues is something I would tell uh, junior lawyers. Do not, whatever you do, undervalue yourself. But then try, you know... Resist the temptation of overvaluing yourself as well. Once you get an initial retainer that is, I would, I would use the word significant. Um, uh, you know, I have a clause in there that here's what the minimum trust balance should always be. If it falls below that, you have to replenish it back to at least the minimum. And if you don't, I stop working. Oh, and uh, that may affect your right to a speedy trial because I may need to get adjournments as we work things out. But you are now put on notice that it, it, it's not going to be my fault that anything falls apart. So again, you you know, it's like, uh, 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 well, let's go with cricket. I bowl the ball at the, at, at, <laughs> at the client and he's got to either hit it or that's that. So uh, in that, that respect, you, you know, the, it's important to put the onus on the client and put it in writing always, follow up conversations, discussions, and put it in writing and, um, and give them homework to do with deadlines. It's very important. They, that also makes them feel involved. So, right? Yes. And one of the things I just want to pick up on is that you indicated, you know, don't undercharge, but don't overcharge. That's right. For new lawyers who have gone to school many years, sacrificed a ton of debt, yes, they should look at, okay, I need to make X dollars in a year. And then say, okay, I'm going to pick up 40 provincial division trial matters that year. Just if it's if they have to make 150,000, 120,000, divide by 40. And that's the minimum. Uh, and this is this is what I was taught of what you should take. And that's when you start. But then you start docketing. And in, if you've committed to a fixed fee or a flat fee with your client, you don't overcharge them, but you have the dockets that you know how many hours are in, and that's where your experience is going to come from and establish what your rates are going forward. And so I just wanted to throw that in. Absolutely. And that was something I was going to mention. Uh, I'm glad that uh, you telegraphed it, <laughs> uh, is uh, the importance of what I call a running memo to file. It's simply three columns, date, action taken, hours. And I cannot recommend uh, to young lawyers or to anybody, be as detailed as possible when you fill in that action taken. So for example, my initial meeting with client, that's the first line, initial meeting with client, colon, number one, you know, uh, complete intake form. Two, review retainer agreement, client agrees and signs. Three, 
start reviewing four. And my intakes are long. I tell clients, you're going to be with me for about two hours, maybe two and a half, depending, because we have a lot of paperwork to go through. And I want to get it done with you there and explain things as we go along. So uh, I talk about things like um, the importance of that retainer, uh, what a retainer is. There's the, the the funding portion of the retainer, the monetization of the retainer, and the written document itself. And the two together equals retainer. And both have to be completed before I can act for you, the client. Um, and, and so we go through it step by step. I also like to make sure, and here's a small tip for new lawyers, that if you ask the client to bring in X number of dollars or a check or whatever, and they don't bring in that amount, that's a great signal of how your relationship is going to go forward. Um, and um, that's something you have to be ready for. And, and the way that a lawyer wants to deal with it, I will leave it up to that lawyer's sensibilities. Uh, some may ask the client to leave and not come back because if they're starting the relationship like this, you know, imagine how it's going to go when you ask for replenishments and so forth. Or... or um, or they may they may wear it. It's there's two extremes. Whatever anybody wants to do, that's that's their shout. Um, with respect to billings, uh, and I didn't answer this. Um, if it's a block fee, um, I suggest to young lawyers if you agree to a block fee, there's a clause in there that you retain the right to increase that block fee. Uh, lessons will be learned that if you you agree to a block fee, some clients will figure, well, that's good. You're my personal assistant now and will call you incessantly and, and waste your time. And how do you dock it for that? Because you're locked in. If, if that is the case, I usually, I've had this happen. I've written to the client and said, look, I know I agreed to a block fee, but on page two, paragraph, whatever, my retainer agreement, I, reta you know, I, 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 reser I reserve the right to increase it. And if this does not stop, I am increasing it to this amount. And that usually helps manage those expectations again. So um, that or I also uh, write to the client after a while, after we've gotten going and said, and tell them, here's the amount of work I'm do I've done. Uh, I may have them into the office and we review my running memo to file. Everything's in there. And I may give them a copy or I may say, look, here's a pro forma bill. The work is not done yet. Uh, it'll be done after uh, you're acquitted or the process is finished. Um, and the scope of that process is in the retainer as well, whether it's a trial matter. Make sure you say it's only for the trial or you know, otherwise they'll expect you to be doing appeals and holding you to the to, to, to the sword of the retainer. So, um you know, I will send something, although we're not done, here's where we're at. And if it's a block fee, look, you're already saving money. Or if it's not, here's where, and it's important in a block fee to say, well, if you discharge me, then my hourly rate of X kicks in. And that's why you want to keep dockets and you want to keep the hours and track them. Exactly. And I, I know that part of the audience listening to this uh, podcast and video uh, are members of the general public. Uh, the message we're trying to send is not that we're looking for a ton of money. Criminal lawyers generally are not the highest paid amongst the profession. Uh, it's structure that we're looking for because structure will allow young lawyers to treat themselves fair as much as they are treating their clients fair. That's right. Uh, there's nothing worse than, uh, and this can be in any relationship where somebody feels 
unbelievably undervalued, but working hard for the beneficiary of that value. Um, you know, and so for lawyers, and if members of the public are listening, it, it would just be like going to work and doing all sorts of overtime and not getting paid your overtime. It's the same thing. We just lawyers, especially young lawyers, want to. They work very, very hard for their clients, uh, and uh, and they they need to be compensated in a fair and appropriate manner. And what I see today, at least when I'm in the courts, and we talked about this before, is you just see young lawyers giving it their all. They're, like there's a great crop of lawyers coming up to replace us, and I'm happy because whatever we've tried to make changes for. They're going to continue with those changes. That's right. Is there anything else in the retainer agreement that uh, you want to mention that people should uh, focus on sure. or, or or be aware of? Sure. So we've talked about the scope of the matter. The you should always put your hourly rate in. Uh, as you as you become more senior, or if you're going to use the services of agents or other legal representatives, lawyers, make sure the client knows that up ahead and what those rates will be. Um, make sure you advise them disbursements or extras. Um, I've made some notes here, so I'm just going to um, uh, go through some. We've spoken about uh, some of the things already. A further funds clause uh, for, the, for, for replenishment. Um, if you decide to give a, a discount uh, to the client in interim billing or whatever, Put a clause in that that's up to you to do, that it shouldn't be expected on the next one. It just, it just keeps things clean. Um, it's very important about uh, the client discharging your services or you withdrawing from your services to have some language in your retainer about that. You know, it's the unfettered right of a, of a client to discharge you. However, you may put in that you'd ask them to give you a signed note so you can file that. Or, or, uh, and also, if you want to withdraw, what are some examples of why you would withdraw your services uh, from a client? Uh, give them some examples, like uh, you know, if you advise them to do something and they don't do it and they persist, or they keep asking you to do things that you're not prepared to do and they persist in it, you may say, well, you know, this is not working out. It's time you find somebody else. But spell out a couple of examples. It can never hurt. Uh, another important one for us is the handling of disclosure. Um, Very important. Yes. So there, you know, we have written undertakings. We have deemed undertakings. Uh, clients getting a hold of disclosure uh, may not realize uh, that they may be bound by, by these things. Uh, my practice is I do not provide disclosure to the client. I would only provide it on notice to the Crown and after a judicial pretrial uh, where the judge has also given their blessings to it. Why? Um, one is you can never, or the client, if they testify, can never be accused of reviewing the disclosure uh, and tailoring their answers. Even though that's an unlawful question, it's, it's, it, it, then there's no good faith basis for the, the Crown to do so. Um, and then only the relevant parts are given to them. I do not give uh, any form of video statement uh, by a witness, particularly well, in a sexual assault trial. That has to be reviewed in my office, and I review it with the client. I don't leave them with it. And it's not about trust. It's so that we can, I can take notes, and they may have certain things to say about that. And it's hard for the client, after watching an hour and a half of interview, to say, here are my 10 points. You may want to discuss that, uh, the, the, the interview, as it goes along and, and take the points down in your running memo to file. It's so important that 
clients understand about disclosure and our obligations because it it, it is a, a uh, it, it, um, just getting a note there. Yeah. Um, I'll get closer to the mic. Um, it, it, it is sort of a, a, a contradiction in that uh, if the client represents themselves, they'll get the disclosure. But once we get it, we have an immense uh, 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 level of uh, expectation upon us, ethical expectations on us. Yeah. And trust. To, and trust to do yeah. certain things. And, and and you have to explain that to the client. Yes, absolutely. And, and so I, I cut you off. Sure. Uh, I let you free... Freestyle? Freestyle, the, All right. the, the balance. All right. So we talked about the handling of disclosure. Um, uh, um, I, I put in a, a clause uh, that, you know, there's no guarantee as to the outcome. Uh, uh, I don't want to sound like a pessimist, but sometimes your greatest enemy is your client. Well, you know, Paul told me that I would be acquitted. Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, read your retainer. It can happen. I've had situations, and this is why you confirm things in writing, instructions in writing, you get them signed, where uh, there was going to be a forfeiture order, and the materials to be forfeited were negotiated with the Crown and, uh, and, and with the client's input, and there was a sign-off. And one of the uh, pieces of property that was forfeited was the wrong one. And it's only after the forfeiture order was signed did it come back and the client was livid that look what you've done this is all your fault and and this piece of property was uh, was worth a significant amount of money and uh, i said well wait a minute and i went back into the file and i said here here's your signature right below the property that's supposed to be forfeited and the property that is not supposed to be forfeited and if you notice that piece you're complaining of was in the wrong column and you signed off on it so to me, it was the correct column. Um, but luckily, we dealt with a very, very reasonable crown and a reasonable judge, and it got fixed. But uh, the client was apoplectic up until it, you know, it was shown to them. So again, it was in the running memo to file. It was in a set of written instructions that the, the client signed. And those kind of things save you. So always have those. Um, uh, I have something about retention periods of materials in my file. So the Law Society has rules with respect to uh, accounts, as does a, you know, uh, the, the Income Tax Act. Um, but if you get other things like disclosure and that material that you're not supposed to return to the Crown 30 days after uh, the, the, the matter ends, uh, what do you do with it? How long do you hold on to it? Well, uh, the, you know, I, I put in a period of time after which uh, it's destroyed and the client is put on notice. Uh, so if they don't want to deal with it, uh, I'm not going to pay for storage forever. Um, it will be taken and shredded and uh, usually shred things in, in large lots and I get a shredding certificate that it's been uh, uh, destroyed by way of a security shred. And so I have, I have something in there uh, with respect to the retention and collection of personal information. Something very important now, particularly that we're looking at, uh, you know, the COVID pandemic and electronic materials and electronic communication. Um, I have uh, a standard clause in my in my retainer uh, that whether the client wants to communicate electronically or not, and if they do, uh, they're they're warned about the consequences of privacy and 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 all that. And they either agree or they don't. They provide a, an authorized email address. Uh, I advise them that, and it's in, you know, that I will not accept instructions by text. 
and I won't respond to instructions by text. So the most a text will be is please call me or I'm running five minutes late. But beyond that, nothing substantive. If you've communicated with them previously by uh, electronically, I also have a clause that ratifies and approves all previous uh, communications. Um, I'm, I'm thorough, as you know, Paul. Absolutely. Uh, I, I am saying, oh, my God, i got to get a copy of this. Yeah. And the other thing I, 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 I do is, um, with respect to electronically signed documents, I, and, and, and documents that might be circulated for signature is I have the client agree, uh, and it's up to them if they don't. Otherwise, we scratch it out. We take it out of the mm-hmm. agreement that, they, that their electronic signature is as valid and binding as a wet or signature in pen um, and that the, the document can be signed in parts. Uh, so uh, all those things are, are in there. Um, very importantly, uh, you know, spouse phones, uh, parent calls, uh, uh, you know, somebody, an interested party calls, well, can I s- discuss things with them? Um, uh, a verbal is not good enough. So there's a, a portion in my uh, retainer agreement where the client can nominate people who I can speak to. They, they list the, their uh, relationship. But it also says that I will give them the information that I deem appropriate and no more. So you control the outflow because, uh, you know, I'm not going to be uh, revealing my defense to an interested party who may have, I don't know, some affiliations with a complainant or something like that. So I don't do that. Um, I spoke about giving the uh, client homework. Well, we get some homework too. What's the next step? Is there an upcoming court date? Is there a phone call to be made? Th- that's listed that here's the next step. If it's a, if it's a court appearance, I, I, I informed the client that unless I advise you otherwise, you must appear in person. Um, uh, you know, and depending if I have a designation signed on that day, but I ask them to always call me a day ahead. And I tell them that for a couple of reasons. One is uh, in case I, for some reason, I cannot make it to court and I couldn't find somebody, um, you know, the client would have to go. And two, sometimes judges do ask, when was the last time you spoke to your client, Mr. Cooper? <laughs> as your face turns red and yeah. you rush to the file to look it up. Yeah. Or as you start grinning and saying, oh, yesterday, your honor, actually, yes. you know, that is yesterday evening, your honor. Thank you. Um, and, and he sends his regards. And uh, Yeah. <laughs> and the last thing is um, uh, many of the younger lawyers and even others, uh, they share space in, in the chambers. And it's important to let the client know that despite your sharing space in chambers, that um, you're your own lawyer and you have no affiliation with the other lawyers or the law firm that you're sharing space in and that, that are, they are completely different and independent people. That, that's important too. And that's important both from the retainer point of view and managing expectation, but also law pro requires it. Oh, absolutely. So, so I, I try and make sure that I, I tick all the boxes uh, uh, from uh, the law society and law pro in a written form. You can always you know, orally explain these things to the client, but then why not just uh, take the time and type it out and discuss it as you review, review the retainer. And my experience has been I've never had a client push the retainer back and say, I'm not signing this. If they do, might have a discussion. Otherwise, um, I, you know, I, I don't think I'd be comfortable taking the client on. When you get to that other part of the interview where you get to discover who this person is, who yeah. this human being is, what their story yeah. is, how do you do that? Well, um, 
it kind of unfolds as you do the intake. Um, you know, in part of the form, it's charges. Okay. Um, and I, I, I'm loath to ask, what did you do? I like to ask more, what did the police say you did? You know, uh, what are they saying? Uh, oh, uh, you know, they said I broke and entered into this property. Uh, and I say, okay, uh, that's what they say. That's fine. Do you have any materials? Um, I have to, and I always tell them this, that the rules of professional conduct require me or I am, I am bound by them. And I'm also bound by the answers you give to me. So I want to first get a very, very executive or high altitude summary. After that, I want to look at disclosure. And then we can discuss your case. But this is going to take several steps. And I give them the example uh, as follows. I say, if there's a, somebody gets shot or a gun goes off in a room and you were in that room, I cannot lead evidence that at the time the gun went off, you were in a, at a movie across town. So what you tell me, I am bound by, and I just can't, quote unquote, forget it. Now, as experience has shown, and you know this, Paul, clients don't necessarily understand all the <laughs> angles. They don't understand the nuances, and they think they're trying to, they think they're telling you things that are helping you, but are either don't make sense uh, or they're completely contradicted by the disclosure you get. And so I want to look at the disclosure before I get into that. Um, you know, Paul, we're kind of at cross purposes here. You told me this on this date, and I really can't forget it because, as you know, I told you I'm writing everything down. But here's what the disclosure says. What's going on? And many of them will say, listen, man, I was scared. I didn't know this is my first time. And that goes into the memo to file. Absolutely. Confront client with X, Y, Z. Client explains they were scared, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, have never been arrested before. And then it's up to you whether to accept their explanation or not. If you don't, then you have to take certain steps. If you do, that's fine. You know, if, if you feel that it's reasonable or you may want to say, I, I got to think about this, but make a note in that running memo to file. It is that thing, that document is a great document because it turns into your uh, your bill. You can possibly, if you want, edit things out or redact them for billing purposes. Or you just give the whole thing to the client and say, here you go. Here's what I did. Um, it's interesting you say that because... I, I really think that uh, we are not dupes, and you, I know you, you're not a dupe, and, uh, and uh, we're strong with clients, yes. and the structure helps us to deliver that. But the other side of the coin is, for young lawyers, I think is you will challenge them, and you will find out, and, and I think you, you've explained like the most common examples. There's been so many clients who've broken down and said, I didn't know what, I was scared. I, or somebody told me I'm not allowed to tell you uh, or I shouldn't be telling everything to the lawyer yet until, you know, if you follow the structure and you build that trust, you'd be amazed. It doesn't matter what the disclosure says. Truth sometimes is stranger than fiction. And once you get that information, you can really help the client. 100%. And, uh, you know, we've been through bar ads. We, we know it. So I didn't recite, uh, you know, the, 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 the mantra. Uh, however, you know, we, I tell the clients, of course, anything you tell me stays here. 
I may write it down so I don't forget it because I have other clients, other files, and it's good for you and me, but I don't use it without your permission. I, I don't divulge it without your permission. Um, and so whatever you tell me, you're safe, and it's good that you're open with me. This is why when parents want to sit in on the interview and all that stuff, I'll get them to sit in on part of the intake, and then I say, um, there's my waiting room. I'll see you in a little while, or why don't you just slope off for a cup of coffee, and we'll call you when we're done. Because um, how many cases have you had where the partner's sitting there or somebody's sitting there, and that person is, and your client is absolutely reticent, and they're making stuff up just to skirt the issues that are really big, big elephants in the room, and, and everything they're telling you just does not make sense. Right. So uh, it, it's important uh, uh, to 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 manage those expectations and particularly those who are writing the check on behalf of a client. Uh, and this is a, another practice tip. If a parent is paying or the spouse is paying, get their photo ID as well, because on audit, they will ask you, oh, mom paid. Where's her ID? Uh, I didn't get it. Whoops. And if a corporation's paying go order that corporate search. Make sure that, that it's a director uh, providing either the instructions for the case or if they're paying for an employee, make sure that you understand who you are, who they are, I should say, and, and, and uh, that they know that there's limits they're paying, but it doesn't mean they get to uh, have any control over the case. It's the client who you work for. That's right. And in the, in the case of corporation, of course, uh, you need a copy of the Articles of Information. That's, that's the surrogate for photo ID, and uh, and, they, uh, and if they, you're dealing with their general counsel, ask them to forward you the latest uh, or, or a current uh, uh, corporation profile report. Right, and corporations, I, I've represented them in the past, and you, know, you may not have that uh, ability to get that corporate report. You may have a friend who you went to law school with who's practicing real estate or corporate commercial. Get them to buy it. You pay them back. You can retain them to buy it. 100%. This is public information. So it, it, nowadays, uh, if you do have a friend or a colleague such as that, uh, it's simply asking one of their clerks to go online and pull it, and, uh, and you pay them the fee. Got to ask you if you can recall or share with us one of the stories where that interview that you had, that human touch that you had with an individual, at the end of the day, at the end of that trial, what you learned at that information made the difference for an acquittal. Now, you know, I, I had a client who had suffered a severe brain injury and, uh, and was accused of doing some terrible things. Um, but it was learning of that brain injury, getting the materials relating to that brain injury, where, the, you know, the, the medical community thought this person was okay until they started having psychotic breaks. And those were directly linked to the injury. Those, his, the client's um, gaps in memory and odd behavior were directly linked to this brain injury. That helped tremendously in, in getting a, an extremely favorable result for the client. Whereas if, if it was just some uh, regular punter, if I may say, uh, they were looking at double digits. Easy. And uh, and uh, that's what the Crown thought, but uh, it really swayed the day once this started getting filed. Even the Crown, it brought the Crown around to, to, to some degree, and then the rest is advocacy work. 
and filing all the correct materials and putting them before the judge. I know that you've practiced for many years, experienced. Um, I really appreciate you sharing all your information today. Um, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, if there's, if there's a young lawyer out there um, or there's members of the public that want to get in touch with Aman Patel, sure. where do they go? Where do they go? Simple. Uh, dial the following number, 416-925-8292. Again, 416-925-8292. That will come directly to me, and I'll be happy to speak to whoever it is that calls. And then we can set up a video conference in these days of COVID or, or some sort of uh, meeting, and we can, we can move forward from there. Um, uh, and uh, uh, Paul, you've uh, you've lavished praise on me, and uh, I, I don't know if I'm I'm all that deserving of it, but uh, and I'm very honored that uh, you uh, gave me the opportunity to share some of my insights for the younger lawyers. Again, thank you for your time, your experience, and your wisdom. Thank, thank you, Amon. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout out to our fantastic producers, Xenia Sethna and Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com.